Chapter Ten, Part One of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Woman in the Big Hat, Part One. Lady Molly always had the idea that if the finger of fate had pointed to Mathis's in Regent Street rather than to Lyons's as the most advisable place for us to have a cup of tea that afternoon, Mr. Culloden would be alive at the present moment. My dear lady is quite sure and needless to say that I share her belief in herself, that she would have anticipated the murderer's intentions, and thus prevented one of the most cruel and callous of crimes which ever were perpetrated in the heart of London. She and I had been to a matinee of Trilby, and were having tea at Lyons's, which is exactly opposite Mathis's Vienna Café in Regent Street. From where we sat we commanded a view of the street and of the café, which had been very crowded during the last hour. We had lingered over our toasted muffin until past six, when our attention was drawn to the unusual commotion which had arisen both outside and in the brilliantly lighted place over the road. We saw two men run out of the doorway, and return a minute or two later in company with a policeman. You know what is the inevitable result of such a proceeding in London. Within three minutes a crowd had collected outside Mathis's. Two or three more constables had already assembled and had some difficulty in keeping the entrance clear of intruders. But already my dear lady, keen as a pointer on the scent, had hastily paid her bill, and, without waiting to see if I followed her or not, had quickly crossed the road, and the next moment her graceful form was lost in the crowd. I went after her, impelled by curiosity, and presently caught sight of her in close conversation with one of our own men. I have always thought that Lady Molly must have eyes at the back of her head, otherwise how could she have known that I stood behind her now? Anyway, she beckoned to me, and together we entered Mathis's, much to the astonishment and anger of the less fortunate crowd. The usually gay little place was indeed sadly transformed. In one corner the waitresses, in dainty caps and aprons, had put their heads together, and were eagerly whispering to one another, whilst casting furtive looks at the small group assembled in front of one of those pretty alcoves, which, as you know, lined the walls all round the big tea-room at Mathis's. Here two of our men were busy with pencil and notebook, whilst one fair-haired waitress, dissolved in tears, was apparently giving them a great deal of irrelevant and confused information. Chief Inspector Saunders had, I understood, been already sent for. The constables, confronted with this extraordinary tragedy, were casting anxious glances towards the main entrance, whilst putting the conventional questions to the young waitress. And in the alcove itself, raised from the floor of the room by a couple of carpeted steps, the cause of all this commotion, all this anxiety, and all these tears, sat huddled up on a chair, with arms lying straight across the marble-topped table, on which the usual paraphernalia of afternoon tea still lay scattered about. The upper part of the body, limp, backboneless, and awry, half propped up against the wall, half falling back upon the outstretched arms, told quite plainly its weird tale of death. Before my dear lady and I had time to ask any questions, Saunders arrived in a taxicab. He was accompanied by the medical officer, Dr. Townsend, who at once busied himself with the dead man, while Saunders went up quickly to Lady Molly. "'The chief suggested sending for you,' he said quickly. "'He was phoning you when I left. There's a woman in this case, and we shall rely on you a good deal.' "'What has happened?' asked my dear lady, whose fine eyes were glowing with excitement at the mere suggestion of work. "'I have only a few stray particulars,' replied Saunders. "'But the chief witness is that yellow-haired girl over there.' 
We'll find out what we can from her directly Dr. Townsend has given us his opinion. The medical officer, who had been kneeling beside the dead man, now rose and turned to Saunders. His face was very grave. "'The whole matter is simple enough, as far as I am concerned,' he said. "'The man has been killed by a terrific dose of morphia, administered, no doubt, in this cup of chocolate,' he added, pointing to a cup in which there still lingered the cold dregs of the thick beverage. "'But when did this occur?' asked Saunders, turning to the waitress. "'I can't say,' she replied, speaking with obvious nervousness. "'The, the gentleman came in very early with a lady, somewhere about four. They made straight for this alcove. The place was just beginning to fill, and the music had begun. "'And where is the lady now?' "'She went off almost directly. She had ordered tea for herself and a cup of chocolate for the gentleman, also muffins and cakes. About five minutes afterwards, as I went past their table, I heard her say to him, "'I am afraid I must go now, or Jay's will be closed, but I'll be back in less than half an hour. You'll wait for me, won't you?' "'Did the gentleman seem all right, then?' "'Oh, yes,' said the waitress. "'He had just begun to sip his chocolate, and merely said, "'Slong,' as she gathered up her gloves and muff and went out of the shop. "'And she has not returned since?' "'No.' "'When did you first notice that there was anything wrong with this gentleman?' asked Lady Molly. "'Well,' said the girl with some hesitation, "'I looked at him once or twice as I went up and down, for he certainly seemed to have fallen all of a heap.' "'Of course I thought that he had gone to sleep. "'And I spoke to the manageress about him, "'but she thought that I ought to leave him alone for a bit. "'Then we got very busy, "'and I paid no more attention to him, "'until about six o'clock, "'when most afternoon tea customers had gone, "'and we were beginning to get the tables ready for dinners. "'Then I certainly did think there was something wrong with the man. "'I called to the manageress, and we sent for the police.' "'And the lady who was with him at first? "'What was she like?' "'Would you know her again?' queried Saunders. "'I don't know,' replied the girl. "'You see, I have to attend to such crowds of people of an afternoon. I can't notice each one. And she had on one of those enormous mushroom hats. No one could have seen her face, not more than her chin, unless they looked right up under the hat.' "'Would you know the hat again?' asked Lady Molly. "'Yes, I think I should,' said the waitress. "'It was black velvet and had a lot of plumes.' "'It was enormous,' she added, with a sigh of admiration and of longing for the monumental headgear. During the girl's narrative one of the constables had searched the dead man's pockets. Among other items he had found several letters addressed to Mark Culloden, Esquire, some with an address in Lombard Street, others with one in Fitzjohn's Avenue, Hampstead. The initials M.C., which appeared both in the hat and on the silver mount of a letter-case, belonging to the unfortunate gentleman, proved his identity beyond a doubt. A house in Fitzjohn's Avenue does not, somehow, suggest a bachelor establishment. Even while Saunders and the other men were looking through the belongings of the deceased, Lady Molly had already thought of his family. Children, perhaps a wife, a mother, who could tell? What awful news to bring to an unsuspecting, happy family, who might even now be expecting the return of father, husband, or son, at the very moment when he lay murdered in a public place, the victim of some hideous plot or feminine revenge. As our amiable friends in Paris would say, it jumped to the eyes that there was a woman in the case, a woman who had worn a gargantuan hat for the obvious purpose of remaining unidentifiable when the question of the unfortunate victim's companion that afternoon came up for solution. 
and all these facts to put before an expectant wife or an anxious mother. As no doubt you have already foreseen, Lady Molly took the difficult task on her own kind shoulders. She and I drove together to Lorbury House, Fitzjohn's Avenue, and on asking of the manservant who opened the door if his mistress were at home, we were told that Lady Irene Culloden was in the drawing-room. Mine is not a story of sentiment, so I am not going to dwell on that interview, which was one of the most painful moments I recollect having lived through. Lady Irene was young, not five-and-twenty, I should say, petite and frail-looking, but with a quiet dignity of manner which was most impressive. She was Irish, as you know, the daughter of the Earl of Atheville, and it seems had married Mr. Mark Culloden in the teeth of strenuous opposition on the part of her family, which was as penniless as it was aristocratic, whilst Mr. Culloden had great prospects and a splendid business, but possessed neither ancestors nor high connections. She had only been married six months, poor little soul, and from all accounts must have idolized her husband. Lady Molly broke the news to her with infinite tact. But there it was. It was a terrific blow, wasn't it? To deal to a young wife, now a widow, and there was so little that a stranger could say in these circumstances. Even my dear lady's gentle voice, her persuasive eloquence, her kindly words, seemed empty and conventional in the face of such appalling grief. End of Part 1 of The Woman in the Big Hat